Good morning. My name is Norbert. I'm one of the pastors of Point of Grace Church. We have another pastor. He's the emeritus pastor who pastored the church for 28 years, but not as good looking as me. Pastor Joseph, would you stand, please? All right. Welcome back from Canada. <clears throat> if this is your first time again, welcome. Now, in preparation for the sermon today, I rewatched some of the segments of the film, The Desolation of Smoke. This is one of the films of J.R.L. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Uh, I watched some segments because there were good conversations between Bilbo Baggins, the Hobbit, and uh, Smoke the Dragon. And when Smoke the Dragon was talking to Bilbo Baggins, how great he was, how magnificent he is, how thick are his, his skins, how powerful is his, his fire, it was like the depiction, ultimate depiction of a dragon. If you've seen it in the screen, you would agree with me that Smoke the Dragon is one huge, ugly, scary dragon. Now, not even King Kong can be considered a match for him. He's really huge. Now, what I find fascinating is that in every other culture, there's a myth, a story, an idea of dragon or dragons. Take, for example, the Chinese culture. In every literature, every painting, every song, there's a dragon. Every time they celebrate Chinese New Year, there's a dragon dance. Every business establishment that is open, everywhere in the world, there's a dragon dance. Anyone seen it? Yes? So, so you know what I'm talking about. Now, not only the Chinese, but the South American Aztecs have their own version of a dragon. I was talking to Andres uh, a while ago. I cannot pronounce this word, but there is a, a version of a dragon in the South American culture. Not only that, but in Central Asia, the country Bhutan have the dragon imprinted in their flag. Another one would be uh, Europe. Europe has the story of St. George slaying the dragon. And we have it here. Here in America, we have the red dragon. I'm not sure if you've seen Hannibal Lecter, the movie. There's a trilogy of the film, and the last was Ray Fiennes depicting the red dragon. When I watched this film, Red Dragon, I was mesmerized by how close it was to the depiction of the Bible of a red dragon. It's not a mythical red dragon, but a real person emerging or evolving from this creature, red dragon. When the Bible talks about dragon, it, it doesn't talk about the mythical creature. It talks about a king, sometimes kingdoms, but influenced by one particular being that's called the dragon or Satan, the enemy. Now, what's interesting here is in ancient Mesopotamia, there's one story of a dragon named Tiamat. This dragon looks like a Frankenstein combination of serpent, lion, eagle, and bear. When you look at it, it's really scary. But how, this is how they portray uh, Tiamat in the story. In the story, Tiamat the dragon was slain by the god Marduk. Marduk is the god king. So in every other culture, there's a story that resembles a story of a dragon slain by a god king. Every other culture has it. Now, almost every other creature depicts evil in the, is embodied by a dragon. So an ultimate enemy, the supervillain, is a dragon. It's always huge, scary, and ugly. That's why we have Godzilla. The bigger, the better. That's the idea here. But when the scriptures use the dragon to symbolize evil, it uses the idea of the dragon to symbolize the supervillain, the super enemy of humankind. Let, let me read to you a portion in the scripture, and let's see if we can make sense out of this one. Revelation 12, verse 3. It says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. The first time I read this, I was like, I didn't know. I was lost. I, I don't know how to make of this one. I wasn't expecting to read something from this in the Bible about dragon with ten horns and seven heads and crowns. It's almost like a fantasy. 
because I thought when I was young, the Bible is all about, you know, old bearded men like Abraham or Isaac or Jacob and all those prophets who can make signs and wonders. And then I thought it was all about Jesus making miracles and multiplying bread and healing the sick. And then I read Revelation and I read the dragon with ten horns and seven heads and crowns. I mean, it's like, this is, this is a fantasy. The talk of dragons and angelic wars seem to be the last place that I expect to, to read from the Bible. This is, to me, very uncommon. So my goal in this sermon is to open the veil and let us see what's behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, by that we mean the spiritual world. We have to ask the question, who is the dragon? What does he do? How does he relate to us? And what can we do about it? And what should other, our attitude be towards this enemy? Now, let's begin with this concept of the dragon. By saying the dragon, the dragon is, the symbolic, is uh, symbolic for the ultimate enemy or the supervillain. Now, having said that, when we talk about the dragon or the enemy, please do not call your husband the dragon or your wife the serpent when you're in a fight. Okay? Serpent or dragon simply means enemy. But when we're talking about the dragon, we're talking about the dragon from the Bible. Now, according to the scriptures, this symbol of dragon is an exclusive and patented reference to Satan. Now, Satan is not a proper name. Satan is a verb to describe the enemy. So whenever the Bible, the original language, talks about the enemy without the, the definite article the, it's just an enemy. I mean, your neighbor can be an enemy, your friend can be an enemy, your enemy, enemy. But when we, the Bible talks about the enemy with the definite article the, they're talking about Satan. Satan, the enemy. Or in English, if we translate that, it would be the Satan, because Satan is the enemy. But let me put this character in context. When John wrote the book of Revelation, this is the last book in the Bible, when he was writing this, he was writing this to encourage the persecuted Christians that although they are persecuted and being killed left and right, what he's saying is that God is in control. God is allowing this to happen and he will avenge the believers ultimately at the very end. And this dragon, the ultimate enemy, will be will lose. This ultimate enemy, the dragon, he will slay at the very end. So Revelation 1 to 3 talks about his letters to the churches. Hold on to your faith. Just stay there. Hold on. Be, be courageous. Chapters 4 and 5 talks about a scenario in heaven where God reigns and is reflected here on earth. Chapter 6 to 11 talks about seven trumpets where God announces the seven judgments for the whole world so that the whole world will pay attention and the whole world will repent. Chapters 12 up to 14 talks about seven signs. Now, chapter 12, we're going to talk about the first sign. The first sign is about the woman and the red dragon. Let's start with verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and agony of giving birth. Now, the book of Revelation must be taken symbolically. This refers to the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph was one of the sons of Jacob. Jacob is the patriarch. Now, one time, one day, Joseph had a dream, and what he dreamt about was something very unusual. He dreamt that the sun and the moon and the stars were bobbing before him. So he told his father about it, but his father immediately caught this. He knew the reference to the sun, the moon, and the stars. This is what happened here, Genesis 37, verse 10. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I, your brothers, actually come and bow down to the ground before you? At, at this point, Jacob and his wives and his 12 sons will soon become the nation of Israel. But here in Revel um, Genesis chapter 37, rather, there are still few. But two chapters before Genesis 37, God already encountered Jacob 
he wrestled with uh, a spiritual being. And when he won, God changed his name to Israel. So from there, we get the name of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to someone who, who struggled with God and won. That's the meaning of Israel. And so this is like a, a foreshadowing of what will happen to the family of Jacob that they will multiply in the land of Egypt. Genesis, and then going to the book of Exodus. So this woman, this woman in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, is a symbol for the nation of Israel. Call it the motherland. Whenever we talk about the Philippines, our motherland. We talk about America, it's the motherland. So the whole nation of Israel is the woman. Uh, in Egypt, she became pregnant. If you remember in chapter 2 of uh, Exodus, it says that the more they are enslaved and oppressed, the more they multiply. So this is the idea of getting pregnant. It says she cried out in pain, just like in chapter 2, where it says that the Israelites also cried in pain, and God heard their, their prayers. The moment Israelite, the Israel came out of Egypt, it is the image of the birth pains. The blood of the Passover was the beginning of the labor. And then when they crossed the sea, just like how the amniotic sac ruptures, the moment they cross the Red Sea, it's like they are reborn into a nation. So use a lot of symbolisms and imagination when you read the book of Revelation, especially chapter 12. Let's read 5 and 6. It says, She gave birth to a male child, the one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, again, you cannot make this literal. You have to take this symbolically. The male child who is to rule with an iron scepter or a rod of scepter is referring to the Messiah, the king, just like Marduk in Mesopotamia. It refers to the coming savior or king or Messiah. So we're not talking just about of any savior, but the savior or the Messiah. Genesis 49 verse 10. Now, now you remember every Christmas, there's a, a magi or three kings that we, we know of who visit Jerusalem to find the, the, the child who was born as king. They were looking for the stars. Remember the three kings? In reality, they're not really three kings. They are magis. They are philosophers and astronomers, not astrologers. They were looking for a king that was born in the land of Israel. But that time, the king then was Herod. And so Herod was threatened because if he's king and there's another king, then it will replace him. And so it started the massacre of thousands of Hebrew boys in his time, just like in the time of Pharaoh where he also massacred thousands of Hebrew boys thrown in the Nile River. So think of the dragon as the enemy who oppresses all the people of God. Any enemy who oppresses the people of God is the dragon or the enemy. Now, what's interesting here is if you compress the story from Egypt all the way to Jesus, you find Jesus, the God-child king who was born in Bethlehem. But you only realize that he's the real king when he was crucified on the cross. On top of the cross, there was an insignia or a, a tag on his cross. It's I-N-R-I. Jesus Nazarenus Rex Yedorum. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He was king. He was executed as king. And Rome will not have any competition with Caesar. Jesus must be crucified as king. And then in the book of Revelation, it says that he was snatched up to God. This is his, uh, John's way of saying that he ascended to heaven. So it was like a compressed story. But then the point is that the woman fled into the wilderness. Now, the woman now evolved not just the Israelites, but also the church, the combination of Jews and Gentiles. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is now a combination of Jews and Gentiles. Now, the symbolism of a woman are brought to the wilderness. 
Now, what is this wilderness all about? Again, this is symbolism for something. According to the scholars, this wilderness refers more to the condition rather than to the exact or actual place. So we can say that as a church right now, we are in the wilderness. Our condition is like in the wilderness where we are exposed to the nature. We are vulnerable to the nature. What's interesting here is that although God promises to protect us, and he sure is protecting us, but yet we are vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. Now, make no mistake about it. God has promised to protect the church. Do you believe that? It's, it doesn't like you're convinced. That, do you believe that God protects the church? Okay, there's a little bit more conviction here. Now, what, what does this protection mean? Does it mean that I will not die anymore? Does it mean that I will escape death? Does it mean that I will not get caught in any accident all through my life? Is that the protection that God promises to the church? The answer to that is no. Listen to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. It says, Jesus said, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, what does this mean? In the Greek and Roman world, there's a myth that once a person dies and enters the underworld, he goes to the bosom of the earth, and there's a rule by Hades, the pit boss, the boss who guards the underworld, that he will not be allowed anymore to return to the land of the living. That's the understanding here of the Greek and Roman people. So the idea is that when Jesus is saying the gates of, of hell will not overcome it, it means that we will not be held in Hades forever. That means we have a way to escape Hades. Why? Revelation 1.18. Jesus holds the keys to the gates of death and Hades. That means we will be resurrected from the dead after all. See, some people, especially the Greek and the Romans, do not believe that a person dies, he's there doomed in Hades forever. He will not be resurrected from the dead. He will be suffering there forever. But Jesus promises us differently. He promised that he will resurrect our bodies from the dead, that we will escape Hades. That's the understanding here. So the protection of God is not that you will not that you will be spared from all the accidents, that you will be spared from all sickness, that you will be spared from poverty. The protection of God is that you will be resurrected from the dead. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. But there's this common notion that in this present life, we are in the wilderness, we are vulnerable to the lies of the enemy. So believers can still believe in the lie that God is not sufficient. We always say that God is sufficient. Jehovah Jireh, God provides. In the wilderness, God provided for the Israelites. Every day for the next 40 years, they were provided bread. Bread rained from heaven. Manna from heaven. Oh, by the way, the literal meaning of manna is, what is this? Because when they were looking at the sky and, and there's flakes, white flakes coming out from heaven, they're asking, what's this? What's this? Translated as manna. Manna, what's this? <laughs> But they have bread every day. Now what's interesting is that we, are, we get confused as to what we need and what we want. God said we will, we will be provided for what we need. Chanel bag is, is debatable if it's a need or a want. Yes, ladies? A Louis Vuitton, I don't know about that. But if it's beyond your budget, then it's a want. It's not a need. I'm not trying to hurt anyone. I'm just trying to, <laughs> trying to be direct. God promises to provide what we need, not what we want. Because in the wilderness, he provided the Israelites what they need, not what they want. Therefore, it is a lie to believe that wants us. I'm going to make a blanket statement here. I believe that it is a lie to believe that God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and famous. It is a lie. Let me develop on that. But let me read to you 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, and maybe get from here this idea. John said, do not love the world or anything in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the, uh, the flesh, and the pride of life. Comes not from the Father, but from the world. Anything that is in the world can be an object of lust. That's the whole point of what John is saying. Anything in excess, anything can be an object of our obsessive obsession, excessive obsession, and can be a point of our lust. Again, the woman in the wilderness is the church in transition. So we as a church live in an apparent contradiction that although God protects us, we are also vulnerable from the lies of the enemy. And every Christian can still allow themselves to be influenced by the enemy, by believing the lie and living a life that doesn't please God. So, is it possible for a believer to live a life that is not reflective of a life of living the full potential that God has designed for her? The answer to that is, you bet, yes. We can believe in the lie. You see, pleasure has a way of numbness. Pleasure has a way to make our spiritual eyes so numb that we have become spiritually incapable to discern the deceit of the enemy. It's hard, it's hard to listen to a lie and not discern if it's a lie or not, if it's true or not. There's a chemical in the brain. It's called dopamine. Maybe you have heard this once. But this dopamine is a chemical in the brain that, according to psychologists, say that when they are released, we get this feeling of ecstasy or high or a hit. Dopamine is what your brain feels when you do drugs, do alcohol, do tobacco, or binge eat, or shop till you drop. Basically, anything that can make you feel addicted to something. Dopamine. Dopamine feels good. But do dopamine is good at certain level. But when it becomes the focus, then it becomes addictive. So people will steal and kill and hurt other people just to get that hit, dopamine. This is the reason why you cannot put down your phone even when you're lying in bed at, after midnight, dopamine. This is why you kept scrolling your TikTok and Instagram, dopamine. You get addicted to it. You see, to seek that feeling of high is dangerous. You see, there's this lie in the church right now that, that the, the better singing we have, the more lights and videos and sound, the better is the worship. What people are seeking is, is the experience, the dopamine. It's not really worship of God. It's the experience. The enemy can make us think that worship is about us and my need and my feeling and my experience. It's not about God whom we worship, whom we awe our worship. These things, the lights, the sounds, the music, everything, can set the mood. But even without these, we can still worship God because these are just helps to make worship better. But it's not worship in itself because God is the object of our worship. Now, remember Paul and Silas, they were missionaries. They went to Rome. And somewhere out there in Macedonia, there were they were put in prison. And it says in Acts, in the midnight, they were singing worship to God. How could these two, in, in prison, without lights and sounds and good music and guitar and drums, sing praises to God, a cappella? Why? Because worship is not about the circumstances. Worship is about the object of their worship, which is God. We have to know the lies of the enemy, and the enemy is trying to trick us that these things is worship. The enemy is very smart. The enemy is trying to help us think more and wanting to experience more and look for more. But it is a lie to think that singing is more important than the preaching or the ushering or the packing of things and the unpacking of things and the fellowship hereafter and the prayer Every bit of the program during the worship program is part of worship. Would you say amen to that? We listening to the sermon is an act of worship. Raising your hand is an act of worship. As well as fellowshipping with one another is an act of worship. The entire program is an act of worship. We have to discern what is lie and what is not. Let's talk about the dragon. 
Revelation 12, verse 3. I don't want to scare you, but this is what is read in the Bible. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. So maybe at this point, think about smog figuratively. Seven can mean complete, just like seven days in Genesis chapter one. Seven means complete. So seven heads means more than one. He's very intelligent. He's very smart. Horns depicts power. So ten horns depicts very powerful, complete power. And then crowns on every head, crown is authority. So he's very smart. He has authority and he's powerful, the dragon. But this, this crown that he has, the crowns on every head is a fake crown. Why do I say that? Because in Revelations 1 and 2 and 3, we know that the lamb has the real crown, the crown that means business, the crown that has authority. Now, Satan has no real authority. Only Jesus has real authority. Satan was not given any authority. Jesus was given authority. When he ascended to heaven, that's what he said. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. He has authority. Satan has no claim on you guys. Only Jesus has authority. So the seven, the crowns on the head of the dragon is not real. But although immediately we think of Satan as the dragon, I'd like to put it down, put it in context. In the book of Revelation, evil kingdoms and evil kings are embodiment of the dragon. They're expressions of the dragon. Because dragon simply means enemy or adversary. So think about Egypt and Pharaoh. Think about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Think about the Caesars in Rome. They are embodiment of the dragon. And the idea of the one I showed you before, Tiamat was slain by Marduk. It carries this idea towards the Bible that God will slay the dragon, the ultimate enemy, the supervillain. Now, I want you to think of the story of Israel in Egypt. Pharaoh wears the headdress with the serpent on his head, on his forehead. He is the depiction of the dragon. When God told him to let his people go, Pharaoh said no. And Moses said, this is the last time I'm going to tell you or else God will take your firstborn. And it happened. On that night, God took the, all the firstborns in Egypt. And so finally, Pharaoh said, okay, I'm going to let the people go. So they went at midnight in a hurry. That's why it's Passover. But then after some time, Pharaoh changed his mind. So he ran after all the Israelites fleeing from Egypt with all of his army. The sea opened the Israelites went through the Red Sea. The army of Egypt followed. And when all the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, the sea went back to its place. And the army of Egypt drowned in the sea. This is the depiction of God punishing and destroying the dragon in the sea. Now, widen your imagination. Listen to Psalm 74. It says, yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Now, this is about crossing of the Red Sea. And the Egyptian army as the Leviathan. Leviathan is a legendary sea monster. So God is... So the book of Psalm is trying to depict the dragon as the army of Egypt destroyed by God. And so every other kingdom and every other king who oppressed the people of God can be called the enemy or the dragon. Listen to Isaiah chapter 51, another depiction. It says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way 
for the redeemed to pass over. Here's Exodus, passing over. And here again is Egypt, the Egyptian army destroyed in the sea. And God is the one who destroyed because he's the one who opened the sea and put the sea back. Again, this is about the crossing of the Red Sea. This is God's victory over the dragon or any kingdom or any king who oppressed the people of God. But this dragon came again in another form. At this time, if you go to the prophets, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. There's this prophecy in the book of Isaiah that ultimately in the end, God will destroy totally this dragon. Listen to Isaiah 27 verse 1. It says, in that day, the Lord, every time L-O-R-D is spelled in all capital letters, this is the transliteration of the real name of God, Yahweh. And in that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. I cannot help but think of the Chinese dragon twisting and turning. What this means to us then is that we who read the book of Revelation can rest in the fact that even though we are experiencing tribulation and persecution right now, there will be an end to this reign of the dragon. The evil and the enemy will soon be punished by God. This is a long saga, a long episodes and seasons where the enemy is allowed to, to destroy, to pull his lies, to affect us, to hurt us. But then at the very end, God promises that he will destroy the dragon. What that means is that the great empires who depict the dragon, the great kings of old, will lose at the very end. Regardless of this is a, a president or a despot or a dictator, any government, any king who persecutes and oppresses the people of God will lose at the very end. So right now, I'm thinking of Christians who are being killed in extreme countries of Pakistan or Afghanistan where people do not accept the Islamic faith. So when, whenever a person does not accept the Islamic faith, he is called an infidel. But when a person, a Muslim, converts to Christianity, he was called worse. He's called murtad. Murtad means traitor. And the only response to a traitor is to be executed. You know what happens when the Taliban catches a Christian, a Muslim who turned Christian? They behead the person. And they are hanged on the streets as an example for many and as a warning. This is what's happening right now. Here in America, we are secure. But there in the Middle East, in the extreme countries where there are extreme extremists, Christians are persecuted heavily. So think of Somalia, of Yemen, of Nigeria. Think of Iran. These are the countries where Christians are heavily persecuted for their faith. And just in case you think that India is all vegan and peaceful, think again. There are extreme Hindus or extremist Hindus who burn church buildings for the sake of nationalism. It's well documented in history. Now, in all of this, what I'm saying is that there's one that motivates the hatred of all Christians. It's one being. It's called the enemy or the Satan. Now, think about it. What motivated Adolf Hitler to exterminate almost six million Jews? What motivates someone to kill someone? I mean, the first murder is Cain, and according to Jesus, it was, it was, his father was the devil from the very beginning who was a murderer too. Anyone who motivates someone to kill is a murderer and a depiction of the dragon. Even the church is undeniably oppressed by Satan's lies. And behind all this, John saw a vision or a sign from heaven. Let me read to you chapter 12, verse 7. It says, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. 
And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called devil or Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. What this means is that, an assumption is that he was first one of the angelic beings of God on heaven or in heaven, but was thrown down on earth because of some rebellion that happened on earth. Now, let me be clear on this one. This is, this is uh, trivial, but we have to be clear. Satan is not the arch enemy of God. Let me say that again. Satan is not the arch enemy of God. God and Satan is not on the same league. They're not equal. It's, like, like, it's not like the yin and the yang. The Taoist philosophy of yin yang is, is false. It's not true. Because the Taoist philosophy of yin and yang presents us that evil and good are interconnected to one another and equal to one another. See, God and evil is not equal to one another. Satan and God are not equal to one another. They are mismatched. Satan is just one of the creations of God before he became Satan. He's not in the same league with God. That's why here in chapter 12, it was Michael and his angels who fought Satan, not God. And even with Michael, he lost. So that means he's weak. Although, of course, the dragon is presented as with seven heads and ten horns and ugly and, and mighty and, and huge and scary. But again, Satan is not, I think we're giving him too much credit. There was one time uh, when Jesus was uh, ministering in Israel, he went to a city by the name of Gadara. Gadara was uh, at the northwest side of Jerusalem. It's mostly inhabited by uh, idol-worshipping Gentiles. It's believed that the um, Roman legion Fetensis was stationed here in Gadara or near the area of Gadara. And, and very interestingly, in the Gospels, it said that Jesus went to Gadara and he encountered a person, and this person was demon-possessed. And when Jesus saw this person and asked his name, the demon said, my name is Legion. Now, Legion is a unit, a number. In the Roman military category, a Legion is about 6,000 foot soldiers. So that means this person with demons inside of him have almost 6,000 demons inside of him. Now think of exorcist 6,000 times. Anyone seen exorcist? I did. I had nightmares when I first saw it. It was so scary. So scary. The head was spinning. He, she was levitating. She was puking green stuff. And she was holding the crucifixion. She's not afraid. Think about exorcist 6,000 times. The person in Gadara was demon-possessed by a legion, 6,000 demons inside of him. And what happened next is very interesting. What happened next is that this demon asked Jesus to be transferred to the unclean pigs. The pigs are what the Romans eat and also what the Romans offer to their idols. So the unclean spirits transferred to the unclean pigs, and they all run off the cliff and drowned in the sea. Another depiction of God slaying the dragon in Exodus. You see? Sea, dragon in the sea. This is very interesting. When Jesus, when Jesus was incarnated in the flesh, he went to Israel, and as if he was doing exorcism left and right. He was casting out demons left and right. Because apparently the Holy Land is not holy anymore. It was ridden with demons. Imagine the 1971 novel of William Blatty's The Exorcist. This, by the way, is based on true story. The true story is that there's a boy who was demon-possessed. But when it was adapted to film, there was a girl who depicted the boy. It was Reagan. So Reagan was 12 years old. She was suddenly possessed by a demon. And in the scene, I don't want to recall the scenes, but in the scene, she levitated. And the more the priests are saying, in Jesus' name, I cast you out, she levitated, she spins her head, you know. Okay, I don't want to scare you, but that's the idea here, okay. She spins her head, and she says foul languages, holding the crucifix and trying to stab herself. 
She's not afraid. Not afraid. And the priest keeps saying, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. The name of Christ compels you. The name of... She's not afraid. But imagine this is the dragon. Imagine this is the demon inside of her. See, even with that, Satan's best tool is not to possess humans. Satan's best tool is to tell a lie. Now, not a lot of people believe in demons. Not a lot of people believe in evil spirits. But we all believe in a lie. And it's very effective. His greatest tool is a lie. Think about Adam and Eve. They fell for a lie. That's the end of all mankind. And then think of Cain, who murdered his own brother. He fell for a lie. Because he thought that God has no right to say no to any sacrifice that he can make or he could give. So he eliminated his competition, his brother Abel. Think about all the people in Genesis chapter 6 that were drowned because they believe in a lie that God is not expecting something from them. The whole world believes in a lie. Even until now, the whole world believes in a lie. There's this philosophy, what they call atheism. People do not believe that God exists because they say science and the power of human deduction has proven that God does not exist. Here's the logic here. The proof of God's non-existence is the positive claim of the absence of physical and scientific proof. That's hardly an argument at all. That means you cannot claim something to be true simply because you cannot find the proof. How about we talk for, about love or worry or hatred? What's the physical proof of love? Nothing. It doesn't mean it's not true. See, here's the problem with atheism. It's believing and claiming on something that they cannot prove. Speaking of lies, verse 15, Revelation 12, 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with flood. The water here is symbolizing the lies coming from his mouth. Not real, little, literal water, but the lies coming from his mouth. Verse 17 says, Then the dragon became furious, with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. I think at this point it's very clear who is who's the offspring of the woman. Now way back in Genesis chapter 3, there was a prophecy about the conflict between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. Revelation chapter 12 mentions the offspring of the woman, the church. It's not the Jews because it says those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So it's the combination of Jews and Gentiles. We, the church, are the offspring of the woman. The dragon then is out for blood. He's waging war against the church. And what that means is that it's dangerous to be part of the church. It's easier if you're not part of the church because you're not the public enemy number one. But when you are part of the church, when you hold on to the testimony of Jesus Christ, when you subscribe to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you are public enemy number one. His eyes are on you. On you. On any one of us. That's what it means. The dragon is spewing and presenting us smorgasbord of lies every day. Think about Instagram for a minute. I'm not trying to, uh, to be, make fun of Instagram, but Instagram, I think, is based on a lie. The filters and the nature of snapshots only tell us the glamour, but not the reality behind it. Remember, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Instagram and TikTok is about fame, the false standard of beauty, and, and it depicts that riches equals happiness, which is not true at all. We have to be smart and discerning. See, contentment may be a cliche, but Jesus spoke about this for a reason. The religious leaders in his day was caught in a lie. They believed that religiosity and holiness is all about how you dress, how well you behave, how often, how long you pray, how much you give, how many times you fast. All these things they think are more important than what Jesus thinks about justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Romans 23, 23. We can all believe in a lie. Let me tell you the biggest lie of all that we are confronted right now 
here in America. Revelation 12, verse 11. It says, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Let me say this. There are people who claim to know God, people who claim to speak for God, people who claim to have direct revelation from God, who teach that it is God's will for all Christians, for all believers, to experience an abundant life here on earth. And by abundant life, they mean money, fame, and health. This is a blatant lie. It's a lie to think that God wills for you to be healthy, wealthy, and famous. You will hear these people saying that abundant life means freedom from debts, freedom from sickness, freedom from poverty, freedom from isolation and depression. It can never be far from the truth. According to verse 11, the church, those who hold the testimony of Jesus Christ, have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That means they have conquered the lies by the word of their testimony. How? Because they did not love their lives even unto death. They were willing to sacrifice their lives even unto death. This means these believers were willing to die, not just on paper or on principle, but in reality they have taken this discipleship call very seriously. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. They have overcome Satan by their testimony, by holding on to their faith in Jesus Christ, by not believing in the lies that physical abundant life means health, wealth, and fame. By accepting that poverty, knowing their priority is not about making money but seeking the kingdom of God. Poverty can also God's way for us. By accepting that frailty of the human body, that being sick doesn't necessarily mean or equals to sinfulness. Overcoming a lie is accepting the fact that his grace is sufficient for his power is made weakness, made perfect in our weakness. 2 Corinthians 2, 12, 9. Overcoming Satan by holding on to our faith is accepting the harsh reality of our destiny as Christians. Now, what is our destiny as Christians? What's your destiny? John chapter 15, verse 18. Coming from Jesus himself, this is what he said. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What it means is that it's normal for you as believer who have the faith in Jesus Christ to be hated by the world. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So expect some persecution. Because Jesus is the one who said we will be persecuted as Christians. And therefore, I would say that it would be a mistake to think that a truly blessed life is a life of tranquility and prosperity. A life of health, wealth, and fame. This is a lie that Satan wants us to buy into. Hear me out. The promise of Jesus regarding abundant life is not the American dream. Let me say that again. The promise of Jesus Christ regarding abundant life is not the American dream. Please do not take me wrong. I'm not against prosperity. I just want us to stop expecting what Jesus did not promise in the first place. Jesus did a promise that we will become billionaires like Elon Musk. Unless you heard the word from God specifically. Anyone heard that lately? A vision from heaven? Uh, an audible voice from God? No? What the Bible is saying is that if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. In fact, if you read Matthew chapter 5, it's the exact opposite. Blessed is the poor. Blessed is the oppressed. Blessed are you if you are persecuted for his sake. When we stop believing this lie, it is the only time we can truly say, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of Christ in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we have truly believed in all the all-knowing and sovereign power of God, is when we can wholeheartedly say like Job, after he was, his, all his properties were taken and the death of his children, this is what it says. 
Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. I mean, this is amazing. All his properties were taken. He was like a billionaire at his, at his, in his time. And everything was taken in one day. All his children died. And yet this is what he did. He worshipped. See, circumstances should not dictate our understanding of who God is. This is what he said. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's amazing. You see, real worship doesn't happen only when everything is going well. Real worship is when we have been stripped bare of all the benefits and yet we still proclaim that God is good. That means even when we're sick, God's still good. It doesn't change the fact. God is good. In fact, even if walang love life, it means God's still good because His goodness doesn't change and it's not affected by your circumstances. If God is eternal, it means He doesn't change. The truth is, God doesn't owe us a dime. Now remember Daniel's three friends. In, in Babylon, there was a rule that they all have to bow down to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel's three friends said, we will not bow. So they were caught and they were threatened to be thrown in the fire. But they said, even though God will not rescue us, we will not worship idols. We will still worship God. I mean, not the benefits. We worship not because of the benefits. People who worship God because of the benefits are not really worshiping God. People are worshiping idols. This is how we know other cultures, they only worship because they get something shiny. See, real worship is worship even without the benefits. Circumstances do not change who God is. He is eternal and He is love. Therefore, regardless of our circumstances, God remains who He is. He is not a God who is good, but sometimes good depending on our mood. To believe that God doesn't change is what it means to hold on to our faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved, whatever you're going through right now, and I don't know what you're going through right now, but there's one remaining assurance, and maybe this is the message for you today, very specifically. Behind all this chaos... Amidst all this busyness and challenges that we go through every day, hear it from the very lips of Jesus. This is what he said. John chapter 16, verse 33. Maybe you can make this your favorite verse right now. He said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Come on, stand up and let's raise a hallelujah. 